there came fox and whoosh, there went fox. There came wolf and whoosh, there went wolf. See, Oliver and a cowboy named One-Armed Bill Wilson. Well, you know, instead of hide and seek, at home we would play the whooping game. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. We'll hear from Lynn Ford today with a great story called Run, about a bunch of critters that you're going to love to get acquainted with and uh, why on earth they are running. Well, that's the story. And, of course, you're going to hear from Donna Ingham, the terrific Texas tall tale teller with a piece called The Story Behind the Story. You'll hear from Michael Katz, a story called The Gift, and from Andy Offit Irwin, a piece called The Night Toddler that you're going to enjoy, a little family tale. And you'll also hear uh, from Angela Lloyd, a Carl Sandburg story, one of the Rudebega tales. We'll tell you about that a little bit later on. But first, we're going to hear a story from Lynn Ford. This is a story called Run, and it's about rabbit. Now, of course, everybody wants to eat rabbit, Wolf, fox, lion, everybody wants to eat rabbit. So rabbit has to be clever to survive. And in this story, he's on his way running through the woods and he's singing about a sound he heard. And the other animals begin to wonder if they should be running from that sound just like rabbit is. So they follow rabbit without knowing exactly why they're running. Here's Lynn Ford with Run here on The Appleseed. This is one of my favorite stories. It blends all the pieces of my heritage. Stories that are rooted in African folktale that became African-American folktale. A touch of the Native American rabbit in there. And also a little bit of European-American folktale blended into things too. But in this story, they say that that fox was standing at the side of the road when he heard somebody's feet moving toward him, lickety-split. And as he looked up the road, he saw a rabbit's ears pop up over the road. Boink, boink. He saw a rabbit's little pink nose pop up over that hill. He saw a rabbit's little whiskers underneath that nose. And he saw a rabbit's fuzzy little bunny buns bouncing along behind him as he moved lickety-split down the road. And Fox thought the same thing that he'd thought before. Fast food being delivered, coming my way. So Fox jumped out into the middle of the road and held out his arms to grab that rabbit. But there came rabbit and whoosh, there went rabbit. Fox said, hey, oh, hey, wait a minute, rabbit. Why are you moving so fast? Well, rabbit didn't stop to answer. He just kept moving along, but as he ran along, he sang a song. Run, run, ain't got time to tarry. There's a mighty big noise back in the woods, and I ain't got time to tarry. Fox said, what? What What did he say? A big noise back in the woods, and he ain't got time to tarry. Now, tarry is not proper English, but I think I know what he's talking about. He said he didn't have time to wait. He didn't even have time to wait for me to grab him and eat him because of some big noise back in the woods. Well, that's a smart little rabbit. And if that rabbit's running from a mighty big noise, uh, maybe I better run too. So Fox started running right behind that rabbit, and they were running lickety-split down the road. Now down the road from there lay Brother Wolf. He was underneath a berry bush trying to digest a nice big meal when he <laughs> smelled rabbit 
in the wind, and you know a little rabbit stew will always do. So Wolf stuck one big pod into the road, ready to grab that rabbit. But there came rabbit, and whoosh, there went rabbit. And there came fox, and whoosh, there went fox. Wolf said, hey, whoa, y'all, why is everybody running like that? Well, Rabbit didn't stop to answer, and Fox kept moving along, but as he moved along, he sang that song, run, run, ain't got time to tarry, there's a mighty big noise back in the woods, and I ain't got time to tarry. Wolf said, mm. I thought maybe Fox was running after Rabbit to eat that rabbit, but they both running from a mighty big noise. Now that's a smart rabbit. And if he's got that fox running from a mighty big noise back in the woods, uh, maybe I better run too. So Wolf started running right behind that fox, and Fox was running right behind that rabbit, and they were running lickety-split down the road. Now down the road from there was a big old cave. In the mouth of that cave lay a big old bear. He had just awakened from his hibernation. Spring was coming, and that bear was stretching and yawning and scratching because you know bears love to scratch and as that bear did all that there came rabbit and whoosh, there went rabbit there came fox and whoosh, there went fox there came wolf and whoosh, there went wolf bear said hey why is everybody running? It's still too early in the year to be running. Little too cold to be running. Why is everybody running? Well, Rabbit didn't stop to answer, and Fox kept moving along, but as Wolf ran along, he sang that song. Run, run, ain't got time to tarry. There's a mighty big noise back in the woods, and I ain't got time to tarry. What did he say, said Bear? A mighty big noise back in the woods. Oh. Okay, bye. Hey, wait a minute, said Bear. They all running from a big noise back in the woods. And that was the big bear wolf, wasn't it? Well, if the big bear wolf is running, <laughs> maybe I better run too. So Bear started running right behind that wolf, and Wolf was running right behind that fox, and Fox was running right behind that rabbit, and they were running lickety-split down the road. Now they got to the bend in the road, and Rabbit made a right turn, ran up three steps to somebody's porch, boom, 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 sat down in a little rocking chair, and started rocking back and forth. Well, Fox got to the bend in the road, and he made a right turn. Didn't see those steps. Boom, boom, landed on those steps. And Wolf got to the bend in the road. He made a right turn. Didn't see Fox laying on top of those steps. Boom, boom, he landed on top of Fox. Bear got to the bend in the road. He made a right turn. 
didn't see Wolf laying on top of Fox, laying on top of those steps, and boom, boom, he landed on all of them. And there they lay as Rabbit rocked in that rocking chair. And the door of that little house opened up. Out walked Grandma Turtle. She was carrying a glass of lemonade, which she handed to that rabbit. Rabbit said, thank you, ma'am. And he started sipping and rocking and sipping and rocking. And as he did all that, Grandma Turtle just smiled until she noticed a mess of animals laying on her steps. Grandma Turtle said, children... Why are you laying on my steps? Bear said, we was running. Underneath Bear, Wolf said, from a mighty big noise back in the woods. Underneath Wolf, Fox said, help. Grandma Turtle said, a mighty big noise back in the woods. Well, children, what was it? Bear stood up. He said, uh-huh. Wolf stood up. He said, mm-hmm. He peeled Fox off his belly button, held him out to one side. Fox said, help. Grandma Turtle said, you don't know what it was, but you were running from it. Bear said, I was running because Wolf was running. Wolf said, I was running because Fox was running. Fox said, well, you know what Fox said. Fox said, help. Grandma Turtle asked, can't anybody tell me about this mighty big noise back in the woods? And all those other critters pointed toward Rabbit. Grandma Turtle said, Rabbit, can you tell me about this mighty big noise back in the woods? Rabbit said, oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Tree fell. A tree fell. Back in the woods, said Grandma Turtle. And you were running from the sound of a tree falling in the woods. Rabbit said, Oh, no, ma'am. That's not why I was running. I was running because I was late getting to your house for this good lemonade, but I don't know why the rest of them was running. They just started running. I turned around and everybody was running. They was all running. They running and running. (laughs) They kind of stupid, ain't they? Well, Grandma Turtle turned to all those other critters. She said, you mean to tell me? that you would start running after somebody without knowing where they were going, why they were running, or where they were going to end up. You mean to tell me you would just start running after somebody without knowing whether or not you were running into trouble? Oh, children, you can't do things like that. It could be dangerous. Well, Bear went on back down the road and lay down in the mouth of his cave to rest on these ideas. Wolf went on down the road and lay back down under that berry bush to think about these new thoughts and digest them. And Fox went on down the road, stood in the middle of the road, thinking how silly it had been to just start running after that rabbit. Then he thought about the fact that he was standing in the middle of the road, and that was kind of dumb, too, so he just went on home. And Rabbit finished that lemonade, handed the glass back to Grandma Turtle, He said, thank you, ma'am, and started making his way on home. 
And this time he didn't run, cause he didn't feel like running. He just walked on home singing the song that he'd made up just for fun. Run, run. Ain't got time to tarry. There's a mighty big noise back in the woods, and I ain't got time to tarry. <laughs> Lynn Ford with a tale called Run here on the Apple Seed. A real pleasure to be with you today. We're going to hear from Bill Lepp. We're going to have a conversation with him about a favorite movie of his. We'll hear from Donna Ingham and more. It's all coming up on the Apple Seed. Don't miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to the Apple Seed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Apple Seed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Apple Seed. There's a lot more coming up uh, in just a little bit. You're going to hear from Donna Ingham, and you'll hear uh, a story from Andy Offit Irwin, a little piece called The Night Toddler. And you'll hear one of Carl Sandberg's Rutabaga stories, a story told for you by Angela Lloyd. What are the Rutabaga stories? Well, the great American poet Carl Sandberg would make up these stories for his kids, and of course they still exist today, these wonderful original kind of fairy tales almost with uh, a flavor of America in everyone. That's all coming up, but uh, first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a little memory of mine about a tiny little drip of oil. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I used to drive a little 1992 Toyota pickup. I bought it off the side of the road a million years ago, it seems like. It was old when I bought it. And with a little help from my friends, that truck was still running 244,000 miles after it had rolled off the factory floor. Well, the help it needed from its friends included a quart or two of oil every six weeks or so. I had taken to picking up a couple of quarts sometimes when I stopped for gas, and on this lovely morning, I had the hood up in the driveway. Just to check things out, I unscrewed the oil cap, reached far down into the engine to pull the dipstick. The ritual lasted just a moment. And then, with plenty of oil, I put the hood down and was on my way. But sometime after my first errand, the truck idled awkwardly to a stop at the edge of the parking lot as I pulled haltingly across it. And that would have been a terrible, mysterious development, except I knew exactly what had caused it. I knew because I'd done the same thing a month before, with no less embarrassment. I pulled off to the curb that bordered the parking lot, and I opened the hood, And there, beneath a fresh coat of newly spattered oil, was the cap to the oil tank, resting innocently right where I'd left it when I unscrewed it in my driveway, just an inch or so north of the opening it was supposed to cover. I'd forgotten to screw it back on. Well, chuckling at myself, I reached in, put the cap back on, screwed it tight, and that's when it happened. A single tiny drop of oil fell silently from the underside of the truck's hood 
and with the most unassuming, faint little pat, landed on the sleeve of my dress shirt just above the cuff. Well, the drop stood roundly on the fabric. I didn't know what to do. The idea of wiping the shirt clean seemed to invite all sorts of complications, and the drop was so small. So I shrugged, and I closed the hood, and I climbed back into the truck and got on with my errands. Well, by my next stop, the tiny drop had grown to the size of a dime. The fresh oil was spreading down and out across the surface of the fabric. By the third errand, it was the size of a quarter and growing. Flecks of oil that I hadn't even seen with my naked eye at the scene of the accident had now grown. I had oil all over my shirt cuff. A little family of virulent oil stains was thriving there, growing together like a family ought. I didn't have time to go home and change the shirt before work, so I wore it and endured the oil stains until I got home in the afternoon, where I went to work with stain removers and bleach pens and whatever else I had. And Well, the shirt hangs back in my closet now, still subtly stained with motor oil, so subtly, to my credit, that you might see me in town and I might be wearing that shirt and you won't know it, but there it is, that discolored patch above the cuff. It'll probably always be there. There, like the countless other things that I let into my life, knowing full well that in large quantities they'll really mess me up, knowing that, but also somehow believing that in small quantities they won't even interrupt my errands. Won't interrupt my errands, that is, until I look down and find them growing on my shirt cuff. Oh, the wisdom of taking care of tiny oil stains quickly and completely, lest they spread up on my shirt sleeves and over my neck and up into my brain and poison and kill me. If I ever forget that principle, I need not look any further than my closet. Take care of stuff early, won't you? I've got a shirt sleeve in there that longs, albeit subtly, to remind me to do that same thing myself. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear from Donna Ingham, the wonderful Texas tall tale teller. But uh, first, uh, speaking of tall tale tellers, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, and of course the tales that we tell, from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And talking about the way that some of those stories get down into our lives and the shape that they take once they're there is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. We're thrilled to be joined right here in the Appleseed studio by a favorite of ours, Bill Lepp. Bill, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Us. Thank you, Sam. I'm thinking about some of the influences on Bill Lepp, the storyteller, right? And certainly there have got to be some favorite films in there. Let's talk about Raising Arizona. I believe that Raising Arizona is the greatest comedy ever made. <laughs> I, people can throw arguments at me, but 
I believe it's the funniest movie ever. And f- for the for the for the uninitiated, right? Raising Raising Arizona in thirty seconds. Okay, so there's H.I. McDonough played by a very young Nick Cage, and he is he marries uh, uh, Holly Hunter, yeah. um, who is Ed Edwina. Yeah, he is a career criminal, a very bad career criminal. He, he robs convenience stores, that's his thing, but he never loads his gun. Because um, he doesn't want to hurt anybody, <laughs> right. so he gets sent to jail. Edwina is the uh, a- a- accepting officer, the admissions officer sure, at yeah. the prison in Maricopa County. It speaks well of you that you don't know what it's called, right? right yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, because he keeps getting incarcerated, they keep running into each other. Eventually, they get married. Find out that uh, she can't have a baby um, because her womb is a barren place in which no seed can take purchase, and then. <laughs> They decide to kidnap a child from Nathan, Arizona, who has had quintuplets. And then at the end, they come to a very important moral decision. Stylized in the way that a lot of Coen Brothers films are stylized. And this was very, very early. It's their second movie, as far as I I can say. Okay. Mm -hmm. Greatest comedy ever. Greatest comedy ever. Tell me about that. Well, it's never played as a comedy. It's not, I mean, I think Dodgeball is the second greatest comedy ever, but that's clearly played as a comedy. Raising Arizona, Ed and H.I., uh, Edwina and H.I., are, they're very earnest. They're not incredibly intelligent people, but they're hardworking, even if it's outside the law. Um, They're dedicated to their craft, (laughs) and they're just trying to have the best life possible. Yeah. And they have a lot of things against them in in that situation. But they keep trying and, and they come they make some bad decisions. Yeah. And and those decisions result in the comedy of the movie. Right. And then there's these ancillary characters, the brothers that break out of jail. So they're dealing with real life issues in a very funny ways. I guess there are some scenes that acknowledge it's a comedy. But yeah. it's often just from this earnest uh Daily, daily struggle to go about life. Yeah. And we laugh at that, which I think really influenced how I write a lot of my stories, mm-hmm. which also goes back to a quote by Mark Twain that, you know, you can never let the audience know that you think this is funny. Sure. Or, or right. what did he say? Yeah. Um, you, you have to pretend like you don't understand why the audience thinks this is funny. Yeah. So, you know, that those two things combined affected how I tell stories, just that the presentation of the comedy in Raising Airs, it's not slapstick. People aren't getting hit. Um, there's, it's not crude. Yeah. Uh, it's just very funny things happening to people who don't realize they're being funny. You, I think it's possible to uh, really love and admire something and have it not show up in your work, right? But you talk about elements of raising Arizona showing up in your work. Uh, you talk about that being an influence, right? Right. Uh, talk a little more about that. What what of that second Coen Brothers film sort of shows up when Bill Lepp walks on stage? Certainly, you've talked about this notion of this this principle, right, of not not playing your own jokes as jokes that you know are jokes, right? Right. Uh, I, I'm just relating events that happen to people who may, might not be that smart. Of course, I'm one of the main characters in most of my stories. Um, <laughs> And my buddy Skeeter and Toad Gilkey and the rest of the crew, Ferndale, shout out to Fern. Um, (laughs) And we're just doing the things that we do, making the best decisions we can make. Yeah. 
that are clearly to the audience the worst decisions that maybe not the worst decisions, but pretty bad decisions for people to make. But what's funny, I think, I think what makes the audience laugh is that they realize that those are the same decisions that they would make in similar circumstances or are similar to decisions they have made because, you know, almost all of my stories are about the foibles of the decisions that we make. And the reason the audience laughs is because I'm admitting to the dumb things that we've all done, which gives us the chance to laugh at that. So I have never kidnapped a baby because I thought, well, they have quintuplets. (laughs) They won't miss one. You know, that's sort of what uh, Ed and H.I. do. Um, But then, of course, they come to learn that, oh, yeah. If if you have five children and one's missing, that that does cause you're a little consternation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all evidence to the contrary, you're gonna know. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so you know, it's just kind of pointing out that most of us, most of us are trying the best we can. Yeah. And to the outside world looking in, we're a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we don't realize we're a mess until we see somebody else's mess. You know. <laughs> and then, of course. The woman that I married, Paula, my wife, yeah. the reason I married her, I I was she was a trainer at a, my first job out of college. I wasn't looking at her. She walked in and she said, how you boys doing? There were 20 guys in this tent. And she sounded exactly like Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona, who I had a huge <laughs> crush on. And I turned to my buddy, hadn't even looked at her, nothing. I said to my buddy, I'm going to marry that woman. And we've now been married since 1994 um, <laughs> because, in part, yeah. she sounded like Edwina. So if that's not an influence yeah. on my life, I, I don't know what say, it is, so Sam. Not only the greatest comedy, but responsible for the direction of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks for chatting with us about the Coen Brothers film, Raising Arizona. Bill Lepp, great to have you with me. Thank you. Great stories do come into our lives in so many ways. What a pleasure to chat with Bill Lepp, and we'll try to have him back here on the Appleseed. Lots more coming up. Donna Ingham up next. You won't want to miss her. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Bill Lepp about a favorite film, Raising Arizona. And coming up now, a story by Donna Ingham, a story called The Story Behind the Story. What's the story behind the story? Well, that's the story. Here's Donna Ingham on The Appleseed. Back in 1985, there was a fellow named Larry McMurtry who wrote a book about Texas called Lonesome Dove. And if you've ever read that book, you may remember that toward the end of it, it's on page 877 in my paperback copy, there's a scene where one of the characters, Woodrow Call, says to his dying partner, Augustus McRae, this would make a story if there was anybody to tell it. He was talking, of course, about Gus's request that Woodrow carry his body all the way back from Montana to Texas, thousands of miles by wagon, and bury him along the banks of his beloved Guadalupe River, and about Gus's wanting to leave his half of the herd to some lady friend. 
Well, now you've got to wonder sometimes how folks like McMurtry come up with these far-fetched, even bizarre ideas about some old boy getting himself shot up by the Indians, being mortally wounded and knowing he's dying, and then making his partner promise to take his body all the way back to Texas, and about his partner doing it after letting that body winter over while he finishes a cattle drive. But I'm here to tell you folks that McMurtry didn't just make that up, because something very much like that really did happen once to a couple of old boys from Texas right after the Civil War. Only the fellow who got shot up by the Indians was named Oliver, and he and his partner Charlie were trailing a herd up from Texas to New Mexico. See, Oliver and a cowboy named One-Armed Bill Wilson had decided to ride out ahead of the herd and go on up to Santa Fe to do a little negotiating. Now, mind you, they'd swung way out west along the Pecos River so as to avoid the Comanche country upward through the Texas Panhandle. But the Comanches found them anyway and set out after Oliver and one-armed Bill. The two men took cover along the banks of the Pecos, but in the fracas, Oliver got wounded in his arm and side. Oliver knew after that he wasn't much good for traveling, so he insisted that one-armed Bill make a run for it and try to get back to the crossing where Charlie would be coming with the herd. Stay close to the riverbanks, Bill, Oliver said, and get to that crossing and tell Charlie what happened. So one-armed Bill Wilson did that. He traveled at night following the Pecos River where they'd taken refuge and staying close to the banks all the way back down to the crossing. He hid out in a cave until Charlie got there with the herd. When Charlie heard about the ambush, he left the herd and rode all night to get to where Oliver was. Only Oliver wasn't there anymore. You see, after he'd waited a couple of days, Oliver had decided that if he didn't bleed to death, he might just starve to death, since he hadn't eaten anything for days by this time. So he started upstream along the river, trying to make it to the crossing himself. But weak as he was, he pooped out pretty quick and made it only as far as some shade under a chinaberry tree. He leaned himself back against the trunk of that tree, and that's where three men found him. Those three men had a wagon, and Oliver asked them if they would take him into Fort Sumner, the closest town across the New Mexico line. Sure, the men said. We'll take you for $250. Well, Oliver had the $250. He paid them, and they hauled him to Fort Sumner and got him to a doctor. When Charlie found out that Oliver was alive after all and where he was, Charlie left that herd again and rode hell-bent for leather straight to Fort Sumner and the bedside of his friend and partner. Meanwhile, gangrene had set in and Oliver's wounded arm had to be amputated right above the elbow. Later, an artery came untied and had to be retied and Oliver's condition just went from bad to worse after that. He knew his time was near. So when Charlie got there, Oliver said, Charlie, I have two things to ask of you. First of all, I need for you to continue our partnership for two more years so as to settle all my debts and to make sure my family is taken care of. Of course, there wasn't much in the way of life insurance back in those days. And Charlie, I don't want to be buried here at Fort Sumner. 
I want to be buried in my home cemetery back in Weatherford. Take me home, Charlie. Take me home. So Charlie promised. Now, mind you, there wasn't a lawyer in that room, and they didn't sign any pieces of paper, because those were the days we'd like to think anyway, when a man's word was his bond. Then Oliver died, and they buried him there at Fort Sumner. Because remember now, Charlie still had all those cattle he had to trail on up north and sell off. It took him five months to do that from September to the next February. But he came back. And when he got back to Fort Sumner to fetch Oliver home, he had his cowboys fashion a kind of metal cylinder. They dug Oliver up, slipped his coffin into that cylinder, packed all around it with powdered charcoal, sealed the ends as best they could, and loaded it on a wagon. The charcoal, of course, was to keep the smell of death from hovering over that wagon as Charlie took Oliver home. They made it without incident, and Charlie saw to it that Oliver was buried in his home cemetery there in Weatherford with full Masonic Lodge services. For the next two years, Charlie was back in Weatherford every little bit, making sure that Oliver's debts were paid off and that Oliver's family was taken care of. Altogether, Charlie paid out half of $72,000 in accumulated trail earnings. Charlie kept his promises. And that story is worth telling, even in a somewhat fictional form by writers like Larry McMurtry. But mostly we need to tell the real story about the real people to whom it happened, Oliver Loving and Charles Goodnight. Together they blazed the Goodnight Loving Trail, one of the first cattle trails out of Texas. And Goodnight went on to blaze four more trails before he was done. So they're important historically for sure. But even more importantly, their story illustrates the length to which someone will go when he has promises to keep, even if he has miles to go before he sleeps. Donna Ingham with the story behind the story here on The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Michael Katz called The Gift. In this story, Michael imagines a moment in which the people Uh, forget the blessings that come into their lives because of the warmth of the sun, and the sun turns its back on them. What's the rest of the story? Here's Michael Katz with The Gift on The Appleseed. Long Long ago, the people, their eyes stopped gazing at the flowers. Hace mucho tiempo, la gente dejó de admirar las flores. Long, long ago, the people, their feet stopped dancing on the earth. También dejaron de danzar. Long ago, the people, they stopped lifting their heads into the light of the sun. Dejaron de voltear sus rostros hacia el sol. So the sun, he disappeared. Suddenly, it was dark all the time. Even during the day. The people wandered around in the darkness. What happened? What's happened? I, I don't know. ¿Qué pasó? Where's the light? 
Kenapa Where's kau lalu? Like I can't see where I'm Hello, going. Where's the sun? So dark. Donde está el sol? Lost in the darkness, the people kept bumping into each other. Ouch! Mama! Hey, that's my foot you're standing on. Auxilio! Ay, me estás pisando. Hey, watch where you're going. Mi cartera! Are you the hell? Ow, you just poked me in the eye. Somehow in that darkness, the people wandered to the ocean where they heard the voice of Tezcatlipoca, the god of darkness, the god of fate. Tezcatlipoca, el dios de la oscuridad, habló y dijo, People, you walked around with no joy in your hearts, no dance in your feet, no wonder and thanks for the gifts of the sun. So the sun, he has left you. And the only way to bring the sun back is to sing to him along with his musicians. And this will make him happy. El sol volverá si lo complacen con música. Pero esa música debe ser acompañada por los propios músicos del sol. You must sing to the sun along with his musicians. Go to the house of the sun where the musicians live and bring them back with you. Hagan un puente que llegue hasta la casa del sol. To get to the house of the sun, you must call upon the whale and the sea turtle and ask them to make a bridge for you to the house of the sun. Pidan ayuda a las ballenas y tortugas. So the people, they called out into the darkness, Whale! Sea turtle! Construyan un puente que llegue hasta la casa del sol. Please make a bridge for us to the house of the sun. And they did. Oh, it was a magnificent bridge. It went farther than the eye could see. Whale was stacked upon whale, sea turtle upon sea turtle. Y las ballenas se apilaron sobre las ballenas, y las tortugas sobre las tortugas. The people set off on the bridge to the house of the sun. Y así la gente caminó sobre aquel puente. First, they balanced on the huge, slippery backs of the whales. Thank you, whale. Gracias, Gracias, Baena. And they hopped on the hard, bumpy shells of the sea turtles. Thank you, sea turtle. Gracias, Tortuguita. The sun could hear the people coming. They were singing a sad song. A song of longing. The sun was still angry with the people. He knew why they were coming. El sol habló a sus músicos. And the sun said to his music makers, 
No escuchen a la gente. Do not listen to the people. If you do listen to their song, you will be thrown all the way down to the earth along with the people. Si los escuchan, serán enviados abajo hacia la tierra junto con esas gentes. Frightened, the music makers stared at the sun and covered their ears. Oh, but it was such a beautiful song that the people sang. Y sucedió que dos de los músicos del sol, Teponashli y Huehuetl, abrieron sus oídos al canto de la gente. Two of the music makers, Teponashli and Huehuetl, could not help but listen to the song of the people. They were so moved by the people's song that they began to cry too. And as they began to cry, they felt themselves falling down, down, down to the earth. Al instante, Teponashli y Huehuetl cayeron hacia la tierra. And when they landed, they transformed into two instruments. Teponashli, the hollow trunk that sings. And the tall Huehuetl drum, which is the voice of the ancestors. Fueron convertidos en dos instrumentos musicales. Teponashli, el tronco ahuecado que canta. Y Huehuetl, la voz de los ancestros. The spirit of the sun was now inside of these sacred instruments. And when the people played them, the spirit of the sun gave them an answer and filled their throats with joyful songs. Así, el espíritu del sol renació en su música. Oh, the song pleased the sun. Y el sol volvió felizmente a iluminar la vida en la tierra. With a smile, the sun came out from his house, and the song of dawn joined in with the celebration. The Aztecs say there are two true things, flowers and music. Music plays to the truest flower, the heart. Que canten los corazones sus más hermosos cantos. Today, let us celebrate the sun and the life it brings with the most beautiful and joyful songs from our hearts. Celebremos al sol aquí en la tierra. The Gift, a little bilingual tale told for you by Michael Katz here on The Appleseed. Up next, a little thing from Andy Offutt Irwin, a family story about an unusual game that he and his son Liam came up with. Liam is a grown-up guy now, but when he was a little kid, well, here's the story from Andy Offutt Irwin. It's called The Night Toddler. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. (laughs) 
Marjorie, Uncle Charles, my mama toots. We're a strange bunch. Somehow I have weaseled my way into a job where I can be as weird as I can be and, and not be thought of in a negative way. Um, um, but I do have this one time when my, my entire city, my entire town kind of frowned on me. Um, I had a little boy named Tristan. Tristan was born um, uh, without very much of a brain, literally. Uh, he was microcephalic. He could not walk or talk. He could socially smile, which is a great life skill, but that's, that's the only thing he could do. So when Tristan was around, and I was directing plays at a college, we kind of shifted our clock to what I call showbiz time. I was working from around 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night. And when I came home, you don't just want to go to bed when you come home. And I would take care of, of Tristan and, and hang out with the family and do things like that. And then Liam and I would go to the grocery store at around midnight or 1 in the morning. Because when Liam was a little boy, when he was born into this family, you know, clocks don't mean anything. He doesn't have to go to school. So we went to the grocery store in the middle of the night. And he, he and I started this game. I don't remember how this started, but it was called the whooping game. <laughs> See, y'all are going to be just like my town. Y'all going to judge me. <laughs> well, this was the whooping game. This is how it went. I would just... Liam would be doing something wrong, but not terrible. And I would just say, I'm going to give you a whooping, boy. <laughs> and whatever he was doing that I didn't like, he stopped. And would run down the aisles. <laughs> and the more verbal he got, the worse he got. He's giving me a whooping. Well, everybody who worked at the grocery store knew us, would roll their eyes. They called Liam the night toddler. <laughs> well, you know, instead of hide and seek at home, we would play the whooping game. And he would come up, Papa, can we play the whooping game? Can we play the whooping game? Son, I'm working. I'm at the desk. I'm working at my computer. I'm paying bills. I'm doing taxes. I don't have time. I'm grumpy growing up, and that's what we do. No. <laughs> Please, can we play the whooping game? I said, okay, you better run, boy. And we'd go in. He would hide, I would find him and whoop and go whap, whap, you know, pretend to spank him, and he would scream. It was great. <laughs> One night we were playing the whooping game, and it was sort of chase and hide and seek and chase. It's a hard combination to explain, but that's what we would do. And he went into the forbidden zone. He went behind my desk, where I had stacks of tax stuff. Oh, oh gosh, you guys can relate. Thank you. <laughs> And I said, Liam, get away from my desk. And that was right when um, Miss Sally Lynette was walking her dog, coming around the corner, walking her little, it's a little, it's, this, it's teeny, it's about the size of this microphone, but it, they, they said it's a dog, and I believe them. <laughs> it's got a little red sweater, says, I'm a little bulldog. <laughs> old University of Georgia thing, it ain't a bulldog. And, <laughs> She was walking the little dog, tick, 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 tick. And it was fairly late, and she was out fairly late, which surprises me, but she was, tick, 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 tick. And Liam was behind my desk. And I said, Liam, get, game's over. Now, the consequence, which was Montessori, and we were going to a Montessori school all the time, and you don't call it punishment, you call it a consequence. <laughs> Rose by any other name, y'all. 
the consequence was that the whooping game was going to stop. Whatever fun thing is going on, the consequence is that it stops. So I said, all right, Liam, that's it. No more whooping game. Liam was so upset, he went screaming out of the house, yelling, I want my whooping! <laughs> it's those Irwins again. And he's going to be just like them, I can tell. Andy Offit, Irwin, with an unusual game. Let's call it an unusual game developed by he and his son, Liam. Liam is a grown-up guy now and a wonderful young man. It's a pleasure to hear that little family tale from Andy. We're going to wrap up the day with a story told for us by Angela Lloyd. Now, this is one of Carl Sandburg's Rutabaga stories, stories made up by the great American poet to uh, tell to his daughters at bedtime. And those kind of unusual uh, poetic fairy tales almost. And these rutabaga stories, Carl Sandburg called them, still survive. And this one is told for you by, again, the great storyteller Angela Lloyd. It's called The Two Skyscrapers Who Decided to Have a Child. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. The Two Skyscrapers Who Decided to Have a Child Once in the village of Liver and Onions, two skyscrapers stood across the street from each other. In the daylight, when the streets poured full of people buying and selling, these two skyscrapers talked with each other the same as mountains talk. In the nighttime, when all the people buying and selling were gone home, and there were only policemen and taxicab drivers on the streets, in the night when a mist crept up the streets and threw a purple and gray wrapper over everything, in the night, when the stars in the sky shook out sheets of purple and gray mist down over the town, then the two skyscrapers leaned toward each other and whispered. Whether they whispered secrets to each other or whether they whispered simple things that you and I know and everybody knows, that is their secret. One thing is sure. They often were seen leaning toward each other and whispering in the night, the same as mountains lean and whisper in the night. High on the roof of one of the skyscrapers was a tin brass goat looking out across prairies, looking out across silver-blue lakes shining like blue porcelain breakfast plates, looking out across silver snakes of winding rivers in the morning sun. And high on the roof of the other skyscraper was a tin brass goose looking out across prairies and silver-blue lakes shining like blue porcelain breakfast plates and looking out across silver snakes of winding rivers in the morning sun. Now the northwest wind was a friend of the two skyscrapers, coming so far, coming 500 miles in a few hours, coming so fast always, while the skyscrapers were standing still, standing always on the same old street corners. The northwest wind was a bringer of news. Well, I see the city is here yet. Yes, and are the mountains standing yet way out yonder where you come from, wind? Yes, the mountains are there yonder, and farther yonder is the sea, and the railroads are still going, still running across the prairie, to the mountains, to the sea. 
Now, there was a promise, a pledge made, by the northwest wind to the two skyscrapers. Often, the northwest wind shook the tin brass goat and shook the tin brass goose on top of the skyscrapers. Are, are you going to blow loose the tin brass goat on my roof? Are you going to blow loose the tin brass goose on my roof? Ah, oh, no, the northwest wind laughed. If ever I blow loose your tin brass goat, and if ever I blow loose your tin brass goose, it will be when I am sorry for you, because you are up against hard luck, and there is somebody's funeral. So time passed on, and the two skyscrapers stood with their feet among the policemen and the taxicabs and the people buying and selling, the customers with parcels, packages, and bundles, while away high on their roofs stood the goat and the goose, looking out across silver-blue lakes like blue porcelain breakfast plates and silver snakes of winding rivers in the morning sun. So time passed on, and the northwest wind kept coming, telling the news and making promises. Time passed on and the two skyscrapers decided to have a child. And they decided when their child came, it should be a free child. It must be a free child, they said to each other. It must not be a child standing all its life on a street corner. Yes, if we have a child, she must be free to run across the prairie to the mountains to the sea. Yes, it must be a free child. So time passed on. Their child came. It was a railroad train. The Golden Spike Limited, the fastest long-distance train in the Rutabaga country. It ran across the prairie, to the mountains, to the sea. They were glad the two skyscrapers were glad to have a free child running away from the big city, far away to the mountains, far away to the sea, running as far as the farthest mountains and sea coasts touched by the northwest wind. They were glad their child was useful, glad their child was carrying a thousand people a thousand miles a day. So when people spoke of the Golden Spike Limited, they spoke of it as a strong, lovely child. Then time passed on, and there came a day when the newsboys, the newsies, yelled as though they were crazy. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, yo, yo. The yelling of the newsies came so strong the skyscrapers listened and heard the newsies yammering. All about the great train wreck, all about the Golden Spike disaster, many lives lost, many lives lost. And the northwest wind came howling a slow, sad song. If ever I blow loose your tin brass goat, if ever I blow loose your tin brass goose, it will be when I am sorry for you, because you are up against hard luck, and there is somebody's funeral. Late that afternoon, a crowd of policemen, taxicab drivers, newsies, and customers with bundles all stood around talking and wondering about two things next to each other in the middle of the street. One was a tin brass goat. 
the other was a tin brass goose, and they lay next to each other on the streetcar track in the middle of the street. The Two Skyscrapers Who Decided to Have a Child, a story told for you by Angela Lloyd, written by Carl Sandburg as one of his rutabaga stories, the bedtime stories that the great American poet would make up for his daughters at bedtime. Pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Do join us online at byuradio.org slash appleseed. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.